Well, I'm here with Michael Glover-Smith, a filmmaker in Chicago, as well as a teacher and a writer. Uh, thanks you, thank you so much for being here, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jake. Yeah, awesome. So we uh, just want to dive in kind of film by film. Uh, I'd be curious to get a little bit of background first, like leading into your first movie, Cool Apocalypse, of uh, just kind of a brief how you got into film, how this ended up being your first film, uh, what led you to... Well, it's it's kind of it. an epic uh, yeah. story <laughs> leading to Cool Apocalypse because I was uh, 39 years old when I made it, mm -hmm. so... Um, I don't want to, you know, I, I, <laughs> I don't want to bore you too much, but, uh, you know, I graduated from uh, film school in 2004 uh, from grad school in Humboldt State University, and at that point, um, I was 28 years old, and everything I had ever shot in school was on film, so I, you know, came back to Chicago, kind of hoping to make independent films, and uh, realized pretty soon that you know, 16 millimeter was kind of obsolete as mm -hmm. a production format. So um, I ended up uh, just kind of putting my filmmaking ambitions on hold and just working, you know, full time. Um, and then I ended up uh, teaching film history you know, at the college level because I had a master's degree. So um, it was a few years later after sort of talking to my students about filmmaking um, that I kind of got excited about trying to do it again. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's when I sort of educated myself about how to work digitally <laughs> um, and, you know, found some collaborators and made a couple of shorts. And then, uh, yeah, Cool Apocalypse... Um, I shot it in the summer of 2014, which was, you know, the summer I turned 39. And I think and this was a very low budget film. As you know, um, I think the budget was about $6,000. Wow. And it was almost like I was so naive when I made it. I didn't even know how much money I needed. It was like um, I kind of wanted to see how much money I could raise and then whatever that number was, that was going to be the, the budget of the film. Mm -hmm. So I think we had kind of an open-ended uh, GoFundMe campaign or something, or it might have been $10,000, I don't know, but, you know, 6000 was what we raised and so that's that's what we spent. Amazing. And uh, what did the shorts teach you for getting into the films? Like, what did you learn from those experiences that you carried over? Well, um, I was really working with digital cameras for the first time. So that was new to me and, um, you know, kind of figuring out how to communicate with a cinematographer, you know, mm -hmm. uh, was interesting because, you know, I, I came from a world of, you know, uh, every time you pull the trigger on the camera, you're spending money mm -hmm. because film is running through the camera. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of the, fundamentals still apply in turn you know it's all about capturing light right um but uh i think i i you know kind of grew to embrace the more lightweight you know sort of freewheeling style of working um while also I think I ended up influencing my cinematographers to be a little bit more shrewd about, you know, only shooting what we need. Because mm -hmm. um, I always, 
you know, I'm a big proponent of the, the detailed shot list, mm -hmm. and uh, as I think you are as well. And a lot of directors are not in the digital age. So, you know, um, I learned a little bit from my cinematographers, and I think, you know, they learned a little bit from me. Yeah, you know, there's definitely a efficiency. I think yeah. that comes from starting there of the overwhelmingness of digital, the possibilities there yeah. of you can exactly. shoot anything, so why not? Yeah, <laughs> shoot. and you know, I, th I think a lot of people, they just let the camera run all the time. Mm -hmm. It's like, let's shoot everything. Yeah. Um, and then that just invites, you know, chaos, mm -hmm. <laughs> especially when it comes to, you know, editing. It's like, yes, yeah. Uh, you're just going to be in a world of pain if yeah. you have <laughs> endless footage to look at. Yeah, you know? yeah. So. Yeah, and so the shorts you made, were they like ideas that you were potentially developing into features that come from feature scripts you had they written? They all were, yeah. Okay. Because I'm not really a shorts-oriented person. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, my stuff is character-driven. Yeah. And uh, I like to spend a long time with characters. Like, I like to slowly sort of dole out information, you know, drip by drip over a long runtime and uh, that's those are the kind of movies i like to watch so mm -hmm. uh so yeah i mean i think both of the shorts i made i made one in 2009 called at last okima and then one in 2011 called the catastrophe and they were both feature-length scripts mm -hmm. where i basically wrote the whole script and then i'm like okay i can here's a good 15 page chunk that i can shoot you know mm -hmm. so they're both kind of unsatisfying in the sense that you i think you can kind of tell that they're like proof of concept shorts for uh longer projects yeah yeah definitely i was actually able to find uh at long last okum on youtube yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's the short i could find and yeah yeah it, it is interesting it's yeah. uh it's, you, the experimentation you it's can like see. the beginning of a okay feature. yeah so yeah it's like it just stops mm -hmm. uh, where the feature really should begin but um you know when i was done with it i kind of realized oh i don't want to as a feature mm -hmm. so it was good that i sort of got those out of my system yeah yeah and then so what made a cool apocalypse like what was it about this idea that you were like this is the one that i'm going to commit the time and resources to well to be honest feature. with you the concept was a lot simpler mm -hmm. you know i mean at last okima is like a it's a musical mm -hmm. it's a pseudo documentary mm -hmm. and it's a road movie yeah. so that already is like you know three genres mashed together and then uh, the, the catastrophe was also a road movie and, um, you know, it was also kind of genre oriented and was kind of complicated. And, um, and so, I, you know, and I wrote other scripts too during that time period. I would write these like long, you know, feature length scripts and, um, and I just realized none of these are quite right. Uh, to make a no-budget feature because that's the only kind of movie I can make. I have no money. Um, and then I just, I, I can't remember exactly how I sort of stumbled on the, the concept, but I just thought, I, I think I was thinking of like, what kind of movie, what kind of feature could I shoot in my own apartment? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so um, it was really born from that. Like, what could I do with just a few people and primarily one location? And then... Uh, and then I kind of hit upon this idea of um, examining two relationships where you have um, a couple uh, going out on their first date and then another couple who are kind of breaking up um, for the final time mm -hmm. after having been in an on-again, off-again relationship. And then I thought, okay, some of these people can know each other and 
one person can be the newcomer to the group. And, and then the, the idea that really excited me once I sort of thought about, once I came up with that concept was really the idea of parallel editing and to cut back and forth between the two couples in almost a musical way. Mm-hmm. And then, because you have basically two parallel lines of mm-hmm. action and then the climax is where those two lines of action converge because that's the one moment where all four characters come together and have dinner. Mm-hmm. And so once I knew that was going to be the structure, then I just, you know, just tried to have fun writing it and you know, tried to come up with dialogue that I thought was interesting or funny or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed with this one, it's the start, something you continue in your next couple films, at least of a structure of kind of very clearly defined chapters or perspectives like in this one at least there's like the titles of introducing the characters like it's introducing the using the chapter titles was not in the script Mm. actually Mm -hmm. um and with cool apocalypse i may have you know i think shot a little more than i would later on and also kind of you know cut things out and reordered things especially with the beginning of the film because there was originally a whole scene with another character who was the landlord mm, of mm-hmm. the two male uh, characters who are roommates. Wow. And this woman basically showed up to collect the rent and only one of them had a check for her. Mm. And it was like a very, ex- I mean, I thought it was kind of funny, but it was kind of an exposition heavy scene where um, it kind of established who the characters were and what their relationships were. And then um, I just didn't think it worked in the film. And I, you know, I was talking to my producer and I was saying, ah, you know, I just want to cut it down as much as possible. And, and I kept cutting it shorter and shorter. And then eventually I just thought, I'll just cut the whole thing. And I told her I wanted to do that. She said, no, you can't do that because that's how the audience knows who they are. And mm-hmm. then I thought, well, it really doesn't matter because like, they won't know in the beginning, but then they'll, they'll figure it out, you know, retroactively. And that was kind of a lesson for me to learn as a, as, um, as a writer, you know, it's like, I, I think editing a film helps you as a writer because then you start to realize what's necessary and what's not. Mm-hmm. And you realize that a lot of what you thought was necessary is not because, um, it's okay for the audience to be, you know, momentarily confused. If mm-hmm. the audience feels like they're in good hands, then they will. It, it's okay for them to to. And actually, not only is it okay, it's almost exciting if the audience uh, is trying to figure out who these people are and how they are related. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've heard it said that you know, even when you're watching a bad movie, the part where you're most engaged is usually the beginning because you don't know where it's going Mm -hmm. and oftentimes when you get bored watching a movie it's after you've kind of figured it all out and you know where it's going right so um to make a long story short adding those chapter titles in cool apocalypse with each of the four character names was a way for me to try and bring a little bit of clarity um after i felt like i had you know removed all of the exposition i still wanted um i wanted to to make things uh to to kind of make it clear to the audience that you know this was a film about these four people and 
you know, they each kind of have their own introduction. And I, I think in a way, you know, they're, they're uh, uh, Nina's character, Julie, and Kevin Webby's character, Paul, are separate when you see them for the first time. And then the other couple, um, Claudio and Tess, are together. And so I thought, mm, maybe, you know, uh, maybe that'll kind of make the overarching structure clear in a way to the audience, um, even if it's on a subconscious level. Like, they'll kind of understand that it's about uh, a couple that's together and two people who are, are destined to meet over the next, you know, 72 minutes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that reminds me, I think it's a Brian De Palma quote where he talks about, uh, he's confused as to why so many films start off with, like, aerial views of the skyline yeah. and he's i think it was he was saying the beginning of the movie is the one chance you have to do anything to get the audience involved right exactly. uh, which yeah i also should point out i think um the inspiration for having the character names at the beginning was uh mean streets mm. you know scorsese mm-hmm. does that yeah. uh and that you know i i thought about that before i tried it because mm. i'm like oh it works really well there yeah and so, yeah, I guess going off that, other films uh, kind of approaching like the structure, writing, whether it's those dialogue or characters, did you have films in mind, like a certain structure you were interested in that you were going after with this film? or what was, Well, yeah. You know? I mean, it takes place in one day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Richard Linklater is the king of that. And mm-hmm. um, I actually had my actors watch um, Before Sunset. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we, I think we did a table read with all four of them together after they had auditioned. And I, we had them all watch that together, and I think we ate pizza, and then we did the table read. And so I think that was kind of helpful because um, I wasn't, I didn't know who they were. You know, it was like a traditional audition process, and these are people all in their 20s, and um, I knew that they had some acting experience, but you never know uh, if people know what independent film is and what kind of movie you're making. And um, I think sometimes when actors mostly do theater, they watch only like big budget Hollywood films. And so um, I thought it wasn't like I wanted them to imitate, you know, Julie Delby and uh, Ethan Hawke, but I thought, you know, it would just be a good way to show them the ballpark of what you know i was hoping to do yeah yeah that's great and, and, I, and I think that was helpful to yeah. Me too. yeah and it gives you a similar cinematic language or a similar uh, cinematic language y- yeah and a, and a similar Reference. like you know character driven kind of you know slightly heightened realism mm-hmm. i guess you could say yeah. So how did you approach the casting process? Was this something we're starting off on this film? You're like, I'm definitely going to need to do these handful, several dozens of jobs or as you win, it was like, oh, I need to be casting director. And uh, uh, well, I, I should point out my producer, Claire, who I just referenced a little while mm-hmm. ago, Claire Kaczynski, she um, worked for Actors Equity. Mm-hmm. And so she worked in the office there and was very familiar with, you know, the world of uh, professional theater. And she was also a big theater fan. I'm sure she still is. And so um, she was very instrumental. She, she basically was uh, a de facto casting director. And, you know, I didn't even really know where to find actors, especially uh, since this was a non-union shoot, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I, if it hadn't been for her, I 
God, I might have just gone on Craigslist or something. But yeah. <laughs> you know, she kind of knew that you know actors' access and backstage were sort of the best places to go. Mm-hmm. And um, and even though it was a non-union shoot, we did offer a small stipend for all of the actors, okay. um, which I think helped to yeah. kind of you know um, it helped the, with the caliber of a person who was willing to to show up yeah. and, and read. Mm-hmm. And so were you in the room reading or listening to, uh, watching the auditions? Um, yeah, I, I think they all submitted tapes first, if I'm not mistaken. Although now that I think back on it, I think it may have been a combination of tapes. and Because in my mind, I know for a fact Kevin Webby submitted a tape when he auditioned for Paul. But I don't know with the others. I, I can I can remember Nina's audition, and I remember being mesmerized by it because it was so memorable. Mm-hmm. I remember she did that in person, and I think that was the first time I ever saw her. She, but she, uh, I remember it was in a theater space, um, in, in a performance space, and she sat down in a chair and uh, took a moment and breathed you know slowly Mm -hmm. and then launched into this monologue and it was like electrifying Mm -hmm. (laughs) to watch and you know i'm really proud of casting her because um that was a week before stephen cone cast her in uh henry gamble's birthday party oh wow which she's great in and so that summer she was actually shooting you know both of her I, i think she um the 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 shooting schedule of cool apocalypse was long because you know we started in june and we finished in august Mm because we were basically shooting on weekends and i think he shot his film kind of in the middle of that and so um she of course was getting paid a little more for that so we kind of had to accommodate her and uh, allow you know work with her schedule um and that was kind of a headache was like how do we how do we get all these people to agree uh to you know these days which were basically you know saturday and sunday and then the occasional friday yeah uh, but again my claire was very good she was the one who who really created the schedule and um made sure she could get all of those people for the dates that we needed them yeah yeah how did you come in contact with claire and have her come on as a producer so she's my sister-in-law oh yeah yeah makes it easy so, yeah. <laughs> um but it's funny because she was a Columbia she was a recent Columbia grad and she had um, graduated from Columbia Film School with a concentration in producing mm. and strangely you know I found that out right when I met her because she was dating my wife's brother mm. and so I met her I think at a family gathering or something and you know it's the kind of thing where it's as soon as I found out she was a producer, uh, I kind of said, oh, well, I'm a director. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need a producer. Yeah. And so um, I said, you know, I have a script. I'll send it to you. And, uh, yeah, the next thing you know, we're working together. <laughs> wow, yeah. Yeah, I found producers can be some of the tougher people to bring on. It's like a very specific skill set, especially at this level of yeah, totally. uh, like 10 grand under. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, producing is one of those weird jobs where it can it's hard to define what a producer does Mm -hmm. and um a producer can do uh, 
can be a producer in a lot of different ways depending on what your budget is yeah you know some producers are good at being there in the beginning and helping you raise money and then other ones are better at kind of the nuts and bolts of filmmaking and overseeing the production and, mm-hmm. um and then some people are better when it comes to post yeah know? so i don't know it's like usually i'm working with multiple people who are doing these things and sometimes we don't even figure out what they're <laughs> if they're a producer until we're done yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean that happened with relative uh, mm-hmm. not to like jump too far ahead but mm-hmm. uh, Claire Cooney, um, who plays a prominent role in that film and is a casting director, I kind of like, you know, she she had been so helpful throughout the whole process. I, you know, it was my idea. I said, you know, you've you were there from the beginning. You gave me, you read the first draft. You gave me feedback. You know, you were the casting director, and now uh, you're. Uh, helping me edit mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm like do you want to be credited as a producer i think that would be fair and yeah. uh she was i think uh, more than happy to to receive that yeah. but it wasn't planned that way mm-hmm. yeah you just yeah find that by the end exactly. certain people yeah uh, so yeah what did the schedule for cool apocalypse look like was that planning like ahead of shooting anything like these weekends or the weekends we shoot or like week by week you have to see who's available i, I, I think well, we, we had the whole schedule nailed down after we cast. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I said, Nina kind of uh, told us what her, you know, it, it was after we, we cast the film, everyone kind of, everybody worked. You mm-hmm. know, these were people who had jobs. Yeah. And so they all kind of said, well, I'm not available this time. And so the schedule was created after the film was cast. Um, and I think, you know, we always knew we were going to do it that summer uh, on weekends, mostly, um, but we didn't finalize it until it was cast, which I don't remember when that was, probably, you know, April or something of of that year, April or May. What was your crew makeup look like for this one, like for Onset? uh, How many people? What were the essentials? Oh, it was very, very Mm -hmm. small. I love I love that you're asking me about this because it's fun for me to try and remember yeah. <laughs> what happened nine years ago, but um, so we had a, a DP uh, named Vince who was a former student of mine mm-hmm. at Oakton College, and then we had, in addition to him, one gaffer, Alex, who was a student at Columbia at the time and then he ended up shooting he's he's now a very accomplished dp and he actually shot my third feature uh rendezvous in chicago alex halstead um so it was really the two of them uh who kind of you know did it all and then uh in addition to them we had an kind of an all-purpose art person um who was who was sort of responsible for the props, um, the whatever art direction we had. And also she was kind of a continuity person because, you know, we had this party scene where people were eating mm-hmm. soup and, and drinking. And we shot that over a span of days. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like, you know, the funny thing is I think we 
I think there were more shooting days on that film than anything I've done since, since wow. which is crazy. Yeah. Because my budgets have gone up. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think there were 14 separate shooting days. Wow. So the the big party scene in that film, which is the climax, we I think we spent four separate days shooting that, and it was on weekends. It was like Saturday and Sunday we shot during the day. We mm. would black, even though those scenes took place at night, um, we blacked out the windows and would shoot during the day. Wow. And then, um, so continuity was very important mm-hmm. because it's like, you know, how, <laughs> how full are the glasses? How full are the bowls? Yeah. You know, we had to keep making that food mm-hmm. over and over again. Um, and so, so the art person was also kind of was kind of scripty as well okay and then um and then we had a costume person uh costume and hair Mm -hmm. uh, and her name was delina so um and she ended up working on uh, my next film mercury in retrograde so sort of a two-woman art department um which took care of art hair makeup costume and then you know a two-guy camera Mm-hmm. And then I think we had a couple uh, PAs kind of cycling in and out who helped with various things. And then we had, um, you know, basically a one-person sound crew, Colin yeah. Lenahan, who I've worked with many times since then. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy how small it is. It's, well, uh, you yeah, know, when you're what making, you need to do. You don't need a big crew. And, yes. and it's really, uh, this is a debate I've had with every DP. Mm-hmm. DPs want a lot. Yeah. They want a lot of people working under them, mm-hmm. and they want um, a lot of equipment. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and so um, I understand, you know, it's like, of course, it's they, they want their stuff to look professional, and they want to be able to use that footage on their reel. Mm-hmm. So they want to be able to, you know, they want it to be really technically, you know, competent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but, you know, they're also taught that way uh, in film school. Mm-hmm. Any DP that comes out of film school is sort of taught that there's a correct way to do things. And nobody's ever taught the no-budget way. They're yes. taught the Hollywood way, yeah. you know, because that's, you know, the schools have to teach that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I think all film schools would be better off if they sort of were like, okay, kids, when you get out of here, you're going to be working with nothing. Mm-hmm. Here's how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I feel like I end up end up training my DPs a lot mm-hmm. um, how to work with me, and you know we usually meet in the middle because they usually you know it's kind of like. I'm usually like, you can have an AC and a gaffer. And then they're like, well, I really also want a grip and Mm -hmm. a swing. And I'll be like, okay, you can have the grip. Yeah. (laughs) Or whatever. So, you know, it's like, I don't give them everything. But, you know, they probably don't have, you know. But I'd probably give them more than I would have. Yeah. uh, If it was just up to me. Yeah, yeah. It's always a conversation. Yeah, yeah. Got to keep them happy for, (laughs) keep them engaged. Uh, well, you yeah, know, I'm yeah totally on the same page. The crew for the film I shot was about five people, including me. And yeah. uh, it is. I remember being in film school just like even not too long ago, and 
just trying to talk to people of like, oh, we can get together this weekend and shoot something. We have a camera, sound, and uh, actors. Yeah. And they're like, but what about lights or That's, like crew? Yeah, it's like, oh, we'll go outside. We'll yeah. shoot <laughs> like, outside. Shoot yeah. next to a window. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's yeah a lot of ways around it. Where yeah, it's interesting. It's not really taught. Well, you know, what's, what's funny is um, you were asking about influences earlier. I mm-hmm. talked about Linklater. When this film came out, the other filmmaker I always mention in interviews was Romare, mm-hmm. uh, who's a total hero of mine. And, mm-hmm. you know, I really love the stuff he did in the 80s and 90s. Um, the comedies and proverbs and the tales of the four seasons when he started really paring his crews down to, mm-hmm. like, virtually nothing. Yeah. Um, but it's funny because uh he could do that because he was famous you know and it was like he started working with people who had no experience Mm -hmm. and uh and i kind of you know it's like i wish i wish i was successful enough to where i could work with you know a crew of three yeah (laughs) you know and Mm -hmm. godard of course did that as well towards the end he was working with you know with crews of three pedro costa works with like three people yeah hong sang Su. yeah um, and those people, you know, they have the time to do it and they have the, you know, they're, they're well known enough to the point where if they hire a DP, the DP's not going to think they're insane. Yeah. You know, whereas yeah. when I say, ah, you only need a gaffer who can also be your AC, you know, they think I'm, uh, uh, either cheap or just like I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you can't name all the lights, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> but you know, have yeah. you seen the Green Ray? Yes, yes. I mean, you know, he made that. His crew consisted of two people, aside from him. Yeah. There was the cinematographer and the, the sound person. Mm-hmm. Uh, he may have had another person who was like an all-purpose assistant. Yeah, yeah. that was around. it. You know, it's yeah. Like, that was it. And they were shooting on film, mm-hmm. you know, and that should be harder. Yeah. You know, with digital, <laughs> it should be easy to do that. Yeah. But no, nobody wants to do it, you know. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I think we've talked about in the past, too, like someone like Hong Sang Soo, whose films look very digital. Yeah. There's no mistaking that yeah. it was shot with a very small crew, but after watching for a few minutes, it starts to, you don't even start to notice. So, like, maybe the first time you watch one of them, it's like, oh, wow, this is... Yeah. Looks like something you could take your camera outside and shoot. Well, he his career trajectory is following Ramirez pretty closely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now he's he's doing it all himself. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Every movie is another position yeah. he takes over. Yeah, yeah. it's like he's, uh, you know, his his girlfriend. She's mm-hmm. also frequently his lead actress. She's now like the production manager. Yeah. <laughs> Even when she's not in front of the camera, it's like mm-hmm. he's shooting it. He has a sound person, and then it's her. Yeah. And I, I honestly think these are his best films. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, in front of your face, I thought was such an exciting film. Yeah. Because it looked so ugly. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I'm like, oh, he's got the confidence to. Mm-hmm. He's got the confidence to do it himself. You know, and the music too. He does the yeah, score. The score, it's like, yeah. It's like he's just like strumming chords yeah. on an acoustic guitar, and it's perfect. Mm-hmm. You know? It's perfect for what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, I think it goes to a thing about micro-budget filmmaking uh, mentality you have to have of, especially coming out of film school, there's a lot of talking, especially in writing, about how to get a wide audience engaged and yeah. uh, the beats you need to hit to like get your film in theaters or something, what you need to have in a movie. But at this level, when it's your own money or money you've raised on your own, you really do kind of have the freedom yeah. to make something that's entirely yours and find your voice along the way, which I feel like 
isn't taken advantage of. Absolutely. But I also feel like it's kind of a political decision Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I I think if the cinema is going to survive, you know, we have to, um, these kind of micro-budget films really need to be able to thrive Mm -hmm. in a theatrical setting. Yeah. You know, because it doesn't cost a whole lot of money to make something that looks good. Mm -hmm. It's easier now to make something that looks good for very little money because of digital. And yet, why are the budgets just going up and up and up and up? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, why does Netflix demand, why why do all these cable channels and all the streamers demand everything be delivered in 4K? It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You know, it shouldn't matter. And like, it's so easy to project, uh, you know, to project uh, an image in HD. So, like, why aren't we, um, you know, going to the micro-cinema and seeing these low-budget films projected, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, there are a few venues here in town that will, that I think sort of cater to that. I mean, I think um, Chicago Filmmakers, mm-hmm. you know, sort of does a good job. Um, but it should be more common than it is, in my opinion. Um, and so, I don't know, as, as a somebody who's made four micro-budget features, I mean, I'm getting ready to do another one, and it's funny, because I'm, I'm kind of downshifting again, and I'm going to make a small, weird movie, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I'm kind in, in a way, I'm sort of throwing down the gauntlet and saying, like, I don't care about getting into Sundance, like, this is never going to be streamed on Netflix, mm-hmm. um, but I'm banking on the fact that there will be an audience for it. Yeah, which yeah, this positive of the internet accessibility era. It's yeah, yeah. trade off of it's. There's more out there, so hard there's to find. There's more out there, but. but it's you know I don't even care about streaming because mm-hmm. you know my last film Relatives not available yet, mm-hmm. um, and we had a really long theatrical run with that film, and I feel like you know I have enough of a reputation now and I have enough contacts with festivals and with and with commercial indie theaters where you know I can do this again and make a small weird movie and um, you know attract investors and uh, with the idea that you know we're gonna we're gonna keep it in theaters for mm-hmm. as long as possible we're gonna do like theaters and festivals simultaneously and keep it in theaters for over a year Mm -hmm. you know um and not a lot of filmmakers are trying to do that you know it's like i think most indie filmmakers they make a low budget to no budget film and then they just kind of hope for a good festival premiere and they hope Mm -hmm. to sell it to a distributor and um you know usually it ends up it ends up online a lot sooner than that yeah a lot sooner than what i do Mm -hmm. whether it's because a distributor you know wants to put it online or whether they end up doing it themselves because they're just like oh well i just want people to see it you know Mm -hmm. so yeah that's that's so i do think i have a little bit of a political stance yeah you know I'm, i'm basically treating my own movies the way that i you know the way that i want to experience other people's movies you know yeah and sometimes do, but, but oftentimes don't, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I watch a lot of micro budget films, but 
oftentimes it's because I catch something at a festival or I see it online and I think, oh man, it's too bad I, I couldn't go see that on yeah. the screen. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so uh, this next film you're talking about, is this, It's I assume it's more, has more of a budget than Cool Apocalypse. Yes, but yeah, it does. Yeah, okay. Because it, it is, a, it, it, it will be a SAG yeah, film. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's kind of, the process of trying to figure out, <laughs> you know, how much money we can spend while getting a, you know, making a really quality film without overspending, mm-hmm. you know, how many days do we need? And I, I really think we're going to try and do this for, you know, eight days. We're going to try and do it for $35,000, which is very low. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, originally I thought seven days and 30 grand, and my producer says, I think you're being a little optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> give, you, you know, give yourself one more day and another 5,000. And, mm-hmm. of course, he's right, you know. Um, so it, it's funny. You know, the more I do it, the more I, the more confident I, I, I am in, in understanding how it can be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess, yeah, zooming back in on Cool Apocalypse, budget-wise heading into the production was it something whether it was like ten thousand that you set for the gofundme and however much you raised was that were you basing that off anything like any it was based films? on nothing i okay. was so naive yeah I had no clue. it was kind of like yeah I, I you know i don't think we had a traditional budget like in a spreadsheet or yeah. anything like that but i think we kind of figured oh you know um you know i probably just wrote it all down on a sheet of paper like oh we can afford to pay up you know each person two hundred dollars and mm-hmm. you know we'll pay gas money for our dp who has to come in and, yeah um we we were loaned some equipment by a cinematographer which was very helpful mm-hmm. and so you know just uh, and then you know we did pay for a location uh we did pay a location fee for um the bookshop Mm-hmm. That was the one location we paid. I think they gave it up to us for you know, four. They let us shoot there for four hours, and we paid them a couple hundred dollars. So you know, just a couple hundred here or there, and then food, of course, yeah. is always. That's the one place where you need to definitely spend the money. Yeah. <laughs> to keep everyone happy. Yeah, and how did you prepare your cast and crew for this experience of? It might not be what you pictured making a movie is like with trailers and uh, all the... Well, um, you know, it was new for all of them. So uh, it was new for everybody, you know. I mean, my DP had never shot a feature. I, this was my first feature. Um, It was the first feature for all of the cast. Um, And I think, you know, we just... uh, you know, it was kind of a, had a summer camp vibe. You know, I was just trying to make sure everybody had fun. Yeah. You know, and uh, I was trying to be kind of you know, honest about the f- fact that I didn't know everything, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and you know, but I, but I did have a shot list, and you know, we did um, we did rehearse in advance, mm-hmm. and that was very helpful. Okay. You know, I would get each of the couples together, and we would spend a, a night, you know, rehearsing. Uh, after the table read mm-hmm. um, and so that was helpful um, and then yeah we just tried to have fun and create something we could all be proud of yeah yeah and what did the production days tend to look like if you... um 
I don't remember how, I don't, you know, nothing, everything was definitely less than 12 hours. Mm -hmm. I, I, I can't really remember if we had any super long days. Probably, I would guess not. I don't think we even had anything that was 10 hours. You no. know, they were, it was more like eight hour days. And so we, I, we budgeted more time than we needed, which mm -hmm. was probably smart. And I think there was maybe one or two days, which were half days. Um, there, I know we went to my dentist's office to shoot the, the scenes in the women's health clinic mm -hmm. because he allowed us, we needed like a, you know, like a, a waiting room area uh, that looked like it could belong to a medical clinic. And my dentist let me shoot there for free. So mm -hmm. we just went in and you know, that was like a half day. Yeah. Um, and I think that we did one day on the beach, which was like the, you know, all the stuff at the beginning. That was a half day. Okay. So it was 14 days, but it wasn't, it wasn't like crazy long days. Yeah. Yeah. It varies a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I mean, yeah, 14, 12, 14 hours is long for anyone. Well, you, that's you what know. I do now. Yeah. No, it's, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like every day is 12 hours. Yeah. And now that people are getting paid. Yeah. Now, now that you're yeah. getting paid, yeah. uh, you're going to be here all day. Yeah. And then uh, was, is there anything you can look back to this movie on as being like the biggest or like a really important lesson, whether uh, in like production, directing, screenwriting, something that you uh, learned that you carried on? Uh, I'm sure there was oh, hundreds. Oh, you know, yeah. I mean, I was so naive when I made it that mm -hmm. I, think the, I think the biggest lesson that I learned is that, you know, make a no budget movie nobody cares mm -hmm. but i didn't know that at the time and um in a way i i was lucky that i didn't know that because yeah. i would have never done it you mm -hmm. know it's kind of like you don't realize how how everything is stacked against you yeah you know? it's like you just love the medium and you've made shorts and you've been to school and you know, you watch something, uh, even if it's like a French New Age film, you think, oh, I can do that. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, I think about Godard's Breathless, which is really, I think, one of his one of his least good films. People love that movie because you watch it and you feel like you can do it. Mm -hmm. It's all handheld. It's all jump cut. It's mm -hmm. all locations, uh, all real location shooting. It's all natural light, and you're just kind of like, I don't need anything. I can do this. Yeah. Um, and then you try it, and you realize you can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but you also think that people are gonna care. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh yeah, no, I'm gonna get into festivals, and I'm gonna get distribution, and even if I'm not successful beyond my life, even if I'm not, you know, if I don't play South by Southwest or Tribeca. Or European festivals. I'm sure there are plenty of small festivals in America that will want to show my work. And then, you know, it's just mass rejection. Yeah. You realize, <laughs> oh, yeah, nobody cares because all of these festivals are literally getting thousands of submissions. So, I don't know, you know, that, that naivete um, was helpful because God knows I might not have even done it if mm -hmm. I had known how hard it yeah. So your your ignorance is really a virtue in, in that sense. Yeah, definitely. I feel like now, too, there seems to be a really strong myth about uh, how your like debut needs to be 
everything like it needs to really make an impact like people always point to like citizen kane and they're like he was 25 when he made that (laughs) and you're like all right that was a very specific period of time very specific set of circumstances right uh not at your first movie is not going to be citizen kane most likely maybe it'd be cool but Oh, you know, yeah. the culture is still very youth-oriented. Yes, yeah. People want to make a big first impression. Yeah. Every, people want to be on those lists. Yeah. Know, 30 under 30 mm-hmm. and all that. But, you know, whenever whenever I hear people trot out the whole Orson Welles is 25 when he made Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. my rebuttal to that is always, yeah, but Claire Denis was 42 yeah. when she made Chocolat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know. Everybody develops at their own pace, and, uh, you know, I was 39. It's funny, though, I do think um, being 39 was kind of a motivator, because, you know, the older you get, the more more cognizant you are of your mortality, and I was like, oh, 40 is, you know, and I've never been the kind of person who's, like, afraid of aging or afraid of death, but I do think there's something about, you know, the big 4-0 where I kind of thought, well, it would be nice to accomplish something by this age. Mm-hmm. So I do think for me, um, even though I didn't have the highest hopes in the world for Cool Apocalypse, I thought, you know, I, I went to film school. I got a BA in film production. I got a master's in film production. And I really uh, want to feel like that training was useful. And I want to shot and mm-hmm. making a feature and if I could do that by the time I'm 40 um, that would be pretty cool you know even if nobody watches it and so not only did I direct this film when I was 39 my, I, I also uh, published a book when I was 39 mm-hmm. which is called uh, Flickering Empire and that was that was published by Columbia University Press in January of 2015 and then I think this movie premiered but maybe April or May of 2015. Wow. When I was still 39. So I felt really good at the yeah. time. I was like, oh yeah, I published a book and I premiered a movie at a festival and I'm not yet 40. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, everyone moves at their own pace, I think, is super important. It doesn't always get yeah. emphasized as much as it should. Exactly. But yeah, because you see filmmakers grow. I always like to point at uh, Who's That Knocking at My Door as an interesting debut because it's definitely solid, but you see, obviously, Scorsese goes on to so much more, but you see like moments in there where you totally. go, that's like, I see yeah. kind of where he's going. Yeah. Obviously, the benefit of hindsight. But Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great film to watch if you want to see a great director mm-hmm. in, you know, you want to see their themes and their stylistic. Mm-hmm. tropes in kind of embryonic form yeah uh, because you're right it's a little it's a little wonky but yeah. at the same time it's still inspirational mm-hmm. I mean the, the other film too that I think was an influence on cool apocalypse is you know um, stranger to paradise that movie is so it was so important to me even though I'm not the biggest Jarmusch fan it, you know what I was saying earlier about breathless being a movie that shows you you could do it Stranger Than Paradise is like that too, especially aesthetically, because it's so simple. Mm-hmm. The use of black and white is, uh, it's it's kind of beautiful, you know. And um, when I made when I w- wanted to shoot Cool Apocalypse in black and white, you know, the biggest reason was because I had no money. It's not obviously it's not cheaper, you know. Mm-hmm. It's the same. It's all digital information. But I remember thinking if people see this, that it's in black and white, they're going to know that an aesthetic 
choice was made. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it, it's almost like black and white elevates your production value in a weird way. Because yeah. people see black and white and they go, oh, this is art. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, Stranger Than Paradise, it's such a simple film. It's like not only the use of black and white, but also there's not a lot of camera movement in it. I mean, there's some tracking shots mm-hmm. outside, but it's like a lot of scenes are in people's homes and mm-hmm. he does the use of like fading in and fading out. Yeah. And all these scenes where nothing happens, you know, it's just like some absurd dialogue mm-hmm. between two people fade in, you know, you see a guy try and teach a woman how to use a vacuum cleaner <laughs> and fade out. And, um, and, I remember the first time I saw that thinking, oh, I get it. It's like, this is a movie really about nothing. But when you take all of these moments about nothing and string them all together, it adds up to something. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it's not, you know, nothing plus nothing can equal something. And it can be funny. Yes. And and the audience knows that it was made for no money. Mm -hmm. And yet that's kind of baked into the charm. Yeah, yeah. So that was an inspiration. I mean, I wasn't trying to make a movie like that. But, yeah, yeah. But but the idea of like it's okay to lean into the smallness mm-hmm. of what you're doing, um, because I think a, you know a mistake a lot of people make when they make their first features is they're too ambitious. It's like too many locations, mm-hmm. too many actors, too much plot. Yes. Uh, too much going on. Mm-hmm. You know, keep it keep it simple and try and create something that people will believe in you know that's and and you you, by the way you're good at doing this i mean i know you're interviewing me but i've seen your first feature and uh and you 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 and i are kind of kindred spirits in that way you know you you kept it simple as well and that's that's what i like about uh your work yeah thank you i appreciate that yeah i know stranger than paradise i know is a was a huge influence on me as well just I, i think like you're talking about too embracing what they had and yeah. using that yeah. like that should be shown in every film school yes. yeah. first semester mm-hmm. first year but of course it isn't no. yeah <laughs> it's like maybe if you get a cool teacher in like an independent yeah 80s class but exactly. and you have like moments sneak up on you too i was thinking about when they go to look at the lake yeah. and part of the black and white is just you just can't see anything beyond them which kind of gets to you is also funny yeah. and certainly helps having john larry and <laughs> richard edson but exactly. uh yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, so going into how kind of long, how long did the post take you on this film? At what point did you realize you were wrapped up, like you were ready to start sharing it? So post, uh, it wasn't super long, but we didn't also have like a schedule. I mean, it was kind of an open-ended schedule. Mm-hmm. Like I said, we wrapped in August of 2014, and we, I believe we premiered the following May. So, and of course, we we weren't in post that whole time. We were, you know, we were in post, and then we were trying to submit to festivals mm-hmm. and getting rejected. So um, it was a few months. Oh, I know. We had a screening of the finished film in December of 2014. I believe it was after Christmas, but before New Year's. Mm. So we were done by the end of the year. Okay. Um, and that was a really important night in my life when we screened it because uh, Milos Stalik, 
the founder of Facets Multimedia was there wow. and he saw it and he was, uh, you know, he, he, he responded positively to it and tried to help us mm-hmm. um, get, you know, festival acceptance. So that was, uh, but, but the actual post, we had, pro- you know, the editing wasn't hard, like, because there, there's not a lot of, there wasn't a lot of footage. You know, we had a very good editor, uh, Jason Becker, who I believe is in L.A. now. Mm-hmm. And um, I liked working with him. He was, he was fun to work with. Uh, and he thought his job was easy. I remember him telling me, he's like, yeah, there's not a lot of decisions to make. Mm-hmm. I, I remember telling him, let everything play out. Let it all play out long. And, you know, he, was, he is an editor by trade. Like, yeah. that is what he does. And since then, I've only worked with editors who were also directors, you mm. know, um, and it's a different experience because I, I feel like even though I told Jason to let everything play long, he still cut it shorter than I would have mm-hmm. because somebody who's an, trained to be an editor, they can't help but yeah. trim the fat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember there's a montage scene, you know, where the characters are driving down Lakeshore Drive and you hear the song mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the way he cut it in the rough cut is the way it is in the final wow and i remember saying like watching his rough cut and thinking it was really good but it's like he only uses the first verse and the first chorus of the song Mm -hmm. like sure drive Mm -hmm. and at that point we had permission to use that song like i paid 40 dollars for the rights, which is insane. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to him, watching it, being like, this is great, but uh, can we use the whole song? And he said, uh, he goes, well, you know, I've kind of used all the <laughs> shots that you have. Like, there's, you know, yeah. uh, if, if we make it any longer, we're just going to be re-seeing the same thing. Um, and it's funny because, uh, you know, he's right, because mm-hmm. that's the way it should be. Uh, but... Like, when we made Relative, there's also a dance scene, um, which is kind of a montage set to a song. And, you know, the first cut, the song is over four minutes long. Mm -hmm. And the first version, Eric Marsh, my editor, he let, you know, he let the whole song play out. Mm -hmm. Everybody who saw it was like, oh, you got to cut it down. It's too long. And, of course, we did. Mm -hmm. You know, it it, it ended up being exactly two minutes. Mm -hmm. So... I remember it became a question of like, okay, let's cut this in half, but the way to do it is to edit the song. Mm. So I remember saying to Eric, edit the song so mm. that the song is only two minutes long. And mm-hmm. he did a really good job because he, he cut two minutes out of the middle of the song. It's not like he faded it out. Yeah. He yeah. kept, because the song has this long uh, fade out. At the, it's got this kind of like long outro mm-hmm. and then it fades out and he kept that and he cut a big chunk out of the middle mm-hmm. and honestly that to me it's like a knife in my heart trying to thinking of what to cut because I loved all of it of yeah, course yeah. like every director you know it's like I got all this great footage of all these great actors dancing and I, I, I could watch that forever mm-hmm. but once I told Eric two minutes no more you know, he did that. Mm-hmm. And then once he showed that to me after he had done it, it's like I wasn't there with him. Once he showed, you know, it's like I saw the four minute plus version and then the two minute version. And then, of course, I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah. That was not necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, I think, one of those things you 
you'll know what's missing more than the audience. They have no idea. They have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, as a director, you think it's all crucial. Yeah. And that's why it's good to not edit your own films, to yeah. be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good to just give that footage over to somebody else. Yeah. And, and, you know, somebody who can allow you to get used to the idea, you know, bit by bit, mm-hmm. that, that it's not all necessary. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you find the editor for Cool Apocalypse? So, uh, Jason, Jason, I... Uh, I believe he knew, I believe Claire brought him on board, if I'm not mistaken. I believe she was, he was someone that she knew, but honestly, I can't remember. Okay. And was it something you knew that you didn't want to, or you didn't have the experience in digital editing that you need an editor? Is what you're just saying, where you knew that from the start of? I I knew it from the start. I mean, I, I did edit digitally in mm-hmm. college like we started off on a moviola okay. with a razor blade yeah, yeah. shooting a 16 millimeter you know a reversal film stock mm-hmm. but then by the time I, I graduated from columbia in 2000 we were editing on uh on uh, final cut mm-hmm. that, by the time i graduated even though we were shooting on 16 we were it was being transferred mm-hmm. to digital and then we were editing digitally okay. and then same thing when I went to grad school. It was a combination, you know. It's like sometimes you were on the Steam Deck, and then other times you were uh, you were doing it on Premiere. So I knew Premiere and Final Cut, but um, but I don't like editing. In fact, that's my least favorite stage of of the whole process. Uh, and it's always fascinating to talk to other directors because, like, it's pretty common for a lot of filmmakers to say that's their favorite yeah, stage. Yeah. You know, is that yeah. Wow, how do you feel about it? I'm, yeah, a little split. It's never been something I've considered myself very strong with. Yeah. Uh, and it was just, I went to film school and the first, one of the first friends, my closest friend still that I made is just an incredible editor. Yeah. So this is one of those things where it's like, well, I'd rather bring more collabor- collaborators on, I think. Like you're talking about, yeah. it's like getting a different view on it. Yeah. It's someone who speaks a similar language, has seen similar films and kind of knows what I'm going for. Yeah. Where I can hand off footage and be like, you can take a pass at it like you do it i want to see what you do with your side of it because you know way more about editing than i do yeah and and the other thing about editing is you know you can always undo it you can undo whatever your editor has done so i think it's really important to Mm -hmm. yeah have like you said someone who speaks the same language but you know is going to do things that you would not do yeah you know because Mm -hmm. often and that's true of every collaborator you know it's like i like to be surprised i like for my actors to come up with things that are better than what I had in mind. Yeah, and yeah. I like it when my editor makes choices that I would not have made, you mm-hmm. know, because oftentimes they're going to surprise you in a good way. And uh, if they surprise you in a bad way, you can always just say no. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I like, I like working with Eric Marsh who cut both of my last two features as well as uh, this short that I have out now on the festival circuit uh, and it looks like if this new feature I want to shoot in January happens, he's going to cut that too. The thing I like about him is he and I are very, we, we share a, a frame of reference and I feel like he knows what my style is. So it's like, I don't have to tell him anything. He mm-hmm. kind of knows how to cut it together. And, um, I always like, he's just, he, he's a director, but he has a real affinity for editing and he can really you know he'll he'll just 
toy around with things forever, just trying to take one frame out or add one frame mm. and looking at the results over and over. I get very impatient. Yeah. You know, I'm like, it's good enough. Let's move on. Yeah. yeah and he'll be too. like, no, 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 I can get yeah. it better. And, you know, he'll, he'll, you know, cut another frame and then he'll say, oh, no, that's too much. Got to put that back. Yeah. In you know, I'm sitting there bored out of my mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. With, uh, I can say with Jason was that a case of you handing off all the footage and you said you do the rough cut come back you, I know you said let yeah, things play you had some notes yeah it was a great experience yeah. you know I, I, I handed off the footage I said give me a rough cut and I think he showed me I I don't remember if I I, I probably watched it on my own the rough mm-hmm. cut first and then he and I got together and refined it of course okay, yeah. you know because there are always going to be moments where i say oh wait i don't uh, there's another take that i think that i remember being better and, or you know uh, sometimes it's more about moving stuff around or whatever but um i think i only sat down with him you know twice like too wow. long after his rough cut i think he and i sat down together for two long afternoon sessions of a few hours and and then once the picture was locked then uh you know, we did color correction. Um, my producer and I did that ourselves. We actually hired someone who I think was a little bit overly manipulative. And then mm. we kind of had to undo his work. Mm. <laughs> my producer and I kind of ended up finishing that ourselves. And then um, the music, you know, that, that we had an original score written mm-hmm. for that. And, um, and that was fun to work with these two composers they did this very minimalist score of just like acoustic guitar and keyboard. And uh, I really enjoyed that process of working with them on the, on the music. Yeah. And at what point did you know you wanted the Lakeshore Drive song? Was that in the writing? That was in the script. Yeah. I mean, you know, I made that talk about naivete. <laughs> I wrote that song oh, yeah. <laughs> into the script. Mm-hmm. I also wrote the song Nina sings, which is called uh, My Walking Stick. That's mm-hmm. a that's an Irving Berlin song. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had no clue who owned the rights to those songs or what it would cost. Yeah. You know, you're just like, oh, this would be cool. You yeah. know this. You yes. have a knack the knife in your film. So you just got to hope for the best. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I really lucked out with Lakeshore Drive because the guy who owned the rights was a, a guy named Skip Haynes who not only wrote the song, he also owned the master recording. Mm. So what he was doing, he, he has since passed away. He basically had a website where he would sell you a custom-made version of the song, which was the original master recording, but he would overdub someone's name into the song. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, like, if you wanted to buy you know a birthday present for your friend and you could have him sing their wow. name in the song because he would just overdub it and so uh, basically that's how i ended up getting the rights i was mm-hmm. like you know uh i'm willing to pay you kind of what what people are paying for yeah. this you know like i can afford to pay you 40 bucks for this can i have the rights for mm-hmm. this forever and he was like sure wow yeah yeah, no, yeah, that's definitely something I fall into a lot, of, like trying to stop. I, I know music is a big part of your life too. Well, so. yeah, I'm a huge fan of yeah. music, and um, of course, that that was a lesson that I learned. Mm-hmm. Like, don't do that. Yeah, don't, yeah. don't write. <laughs> you know, um, don't write the songs into the script mm-hmm. because 
you're probably not going to be able to afford it. So, you know, just doing the research and figuring out who owns the rights and trying to negotiate it mm-hmm. is so difficult. Um, so since then, you know, I have licensed some songs for very little. Um, and then oftentimes I'll get music for free. Um, you know, I have paid composers to write things. And then uh, sometimes, you know, I just have friends who are musicians uh, who are willing to like let me use uh, music for free? Yeah. So it's the micro budget way. Yeah, yeah. Friends and friends. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Similar minded artists, exactly. but so it's like you know every yeah. micro budget film has a bunch of pop songs in it that yeah. you've never heard because mm-hmm. it's a musician friend of the film. Yeah. <laughs> that's like a very that's a very like two thousand tens. Yeah. Know, <laughs> you know, like Stephen Cohen. You know, you mm-hmm. see that. I kind of learned that from him. You mm-hmm. know? And then, yeah, so with the, like, festivals distribution, you talked a little bit about your experience with festivals, but what did this experience with, like, this film teach you about getting your film out there and seen by audiences? Well, I was lucky because, you know, I, I, I was definitely rejected by a lot of festivals, um, but I was somewhat realistic. Like, I was submitting to a lot of the small festivals we premiered at the illinois international film festival Mm. have you ever heard of it i don't think i have (laughs) you haven't it's been around a long time yeah yeah and at that time it was held in um where did wayne's world take place oh aurora aurora yeah yeah aurora illinois Mm -hmm. at a um like in the field house of a public park. Wow. So they wanted, you know, they accepted it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I should also point out, you know, I, I didn't submit it to the big festivals, you know. Um, I submitted it to some sort of medium-sized festivals. And then Illinois International wanted it. And they also gave us their, you know, best picture award or best narrative feature award Mm -hmm. so that made me feel good yeah even though it's a small festival that nobody's ever heard of Mm -hmm. there were other features in that festival there was one about you know harold washington it was like a period piece set in the 80s so the fact that we won over that um was kind of gratifying you know i thought wow this is really cool and then uh you know we played a couple of other small festivals and including a really great festival in North Carolina, which I know you're aware of, Full Bloom, mm-hmm. which I'm going back to next month with my new short. And that was kind of a lesson that I learned was, you know, everybody, when they make their first feature, they want to get into uh, festivals that are established, that have been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's one of the ways you can sort festivals on Film Freeway, yeah, right? Yeah. It's like more than five years. Yeah. Has the festival been around more than 10 years? Because mm-hmm. you figure, oh, it's going to be a good festival. But uh, I always tell you know aspiring filmmakers, look at festivals that are brand new. Because you know, you're a brand new filmmaker. And oftentimes, the people who are putting on these festivals, even if they've never done it before, they're serious. Mm-hmm. You know, Just like you're serious. And um, that's how you forge relationships. So Full Bloom in Statesville, you know, was their first year. They took a chance on me by programming me. I took a chance on them mm-hmm. by submitting to them. Yeah. And I went down there and they also gave me an award for best narrative feature. Mm-hmm. 
which came with a cash prize. Mm. So that was mind-blowing. Yeah. And the whole reason why I found out about them was um, I was looking for festivals in North Carolina because that's where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it would be fun to get on there and see family and yeah. you know, kill two birds with one stone. But also, I looked at the website for the festival, and it seemed like they were really doing it right. You know, it's like they had the you know, Chamber of Commerce involved, mm-hmm. and it's like they had a lot of support. It was obvious they had a lot of support from the community. So, you know, it's like the longer a festival is around, the more submissions they're going to get. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, oh, this is a festival. It's their first year. They're probably not going to get a ton of submissions, but um, it seems like it's going to be good. Yeah. It was, and I feel like Full Bloom and I have sort of grown up together because now they're in their ninth year or whatever, and um, they'll be showing one of my films for the fourth time. Wow. So it's like I've seen that festival evolve, and that festival has seen me evolve yeah. as a filmmaker. So that's, you know, that's pretty cool. And then... Um, I think we got we also got to do a small festival in South Carolina around then, and they also gave us an award. So we won awards at the first three festivals, and that was really surprising, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then I, then I thought maybe I should submit this to a theater, and that's when I submitted it to the Gene Siskel Film Center, which has always been my favorite yeah. theater in Chicago because of the programming. And uh, I have been going there since, I, you know, nineteen ninety four, probably maybe ninety three. And um, when they agreed to show it, that really blew my mind because um, I just wasn't aware of them having ever shown a film made, a feature film made, you know, on that low of a budget. Mm-hmm. But they liked it, and they were willing to give me two screenings, and that really opened a lot of doors for me because the film was reviewed by Ray Pride in New City Magazine. He made that his you know critics pick for the wow. week, one of his you know, mm-hmm. five critics picks for the week or whatever. Um, back when New City was a weekly, and then um, as a result of that. A guy named Craig Keller. I don't know if you're aware of him. He's a very good critic and mm-hmm. Blu-ray producer. He used to work yeah. for um, Masters of Cinema, the oh, European yeah, yeah. Blu-ray label. Mm-hmm. And now he works for, um, I think, a couple labels in the U.S. But he asked to see it uh, because he read Ray's review wow. online. And yeah. I sent him a link and he watched it and he reviewed it for his blog which is called Cinema Asparagus and I think he was living in New York at the time and so he gave me this really nice review he compared it to the work of um, like I think Ignati Vishnevetsky or mm-hmm. maybe early Swanberg and then also the French New Wave because yeah. he's very uh, he's very cinema literate mm-hmm. and so that made me feel like you know I kind of reached the right you know, I was I was reaching the right people, yeah, and that really gave me the confidence to do it again. You know, more so than any, more so than the festivals, it was like playing the Siskel mm-hmm. and getting positive reviews. Yeah, I thought, I thought, oh man, like let's do this again and let's do it with a much higher budget. Like I can write a film that takes place 
somewhere else. And then, of course, you know, that became uh, Mercury in retrograde.